You alone deserve the highest praise. And uh, Lord, I pray you just remind us of that tonight, of your goodness and your greatness and of course the reality that you are on your way, that you are coming soon. God, may you encourage us in that truth in your word tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumor of wars. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And when he who endures to the end, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Father, as we begin to explore Matthew 24 over the next few weeks and just see you answering this question that your disciples had, what will be the sign of your coming? Father, I pray that you would open the text up to us that you would help us to understand. But Lord, my heart is not that we would gather together and study prophecy just to excite some, some part of our hearts or our lives. I pray it would translate into lives that are holy, into lives that are effective, that we would get through, at least for me, our thick skull, that you are coming again. And it would change the way we look at tribulation. It would change the way we look at opportunities to sin father would you change our hearts by the power of your word and your spirit tonight i thank you so much for each person you brought here i thank you for those that are watching online lord may we be more like you by the time we have here tonight in jesus name amen amen you may be seated we are within a few studies of being coming to the end of being discipled by jesus a series we began last summer, this summer past, where we've been looking at those passages of Scripture where Jesus didn't so much deal with the multitudes. There's plenty of parts in the Gospels where that was going on. Not so much when he was sharing with the Pharisees or Sadducees, but when especially he had the disciples. The, those men and women that he wanted and knew were going to change their generation for the better. 
And I, and I think it's such an important study for us to go through because we want to be disciples. We want to affect the culture and community in which God has placed us in. And so we began this by looking at the Sermon on the Mount and just seeing that Jesus told us, here's a narrow road, get on it. You're to be salt and light right where I've got you. Then we spent some time in the middle of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 10 and Matthew 16 and we, we saw how Jesus narrowed down many disciples to 12 and then challenged them, hey, sometimes it costs you to be a disciple. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. Then the last several weeks, we've been in John 13 through 17, kind of those last words that Jesus shared with his disciples right before he was betrayed and then crucified, because so often someone's last words are so important. And so we've been looking at many lessons and secrets to life and ministry from John 13 through 17. If you missed any of those, they're available on Calvary Chapel Vista's website. You can get those and study and continue on the series with us. But before we wrap up this series, there's a few more passages of scripture that I thought was just key for us to understand, again, that Jesus shared exclusively with his disciples. And one of those I think is so important is here in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and 25, really both of them, is the longest single answer Jesus ever gave to one question. Jesus was classic at one-line answers and just getting right to the point. But this time, he spends the equivalent to us two chapters answering one question from the disciples. And tonight, I want us to understand the occasion for the question. What brought it on? I want us to look at the question itself and then begin to unpack Jesus' answer to the question over the next several weeks together. A question, as we start tonight, we want to consider again the occasion for the question. So look back at verse 1. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The disciples, again, are about to ask a question. A question, as I just said, will produce the longest answer Jesus ever gave to one single question. But the occasion, what brought on the disciples' question? Well, you've got to kind of understand the context. Anytime we just open up to the middle of a book, it's sometimes kind of like being dropped into a jungle somewhere and told to run north. Well, what way is north? Well, well, understand, Matthew 24 comes right after Matthew 23. That's my best point tonight, so write that down. No, just kidding. But Matthew 23 is Jesus' last public sermon. Again, there's lots more he had to share with his disciples. But Matthew 23 was his last public sermon. And in it, he ripped the scribes and the Pharisees. He called them snakes, vipers, whitewashed tombs. And the apostles to be real, were set back a little bit. You know, when we hear the word Pharisee, for you and I, that word is synonymous with hypocrite. And so, so to hear Jesus call hypocrites snakes, vipers, it doesn't hit us like it would have hit the disciples. You see, understand, growing up, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that was all the disciples knew as real, deep, spiritual men. And Jesus' words, even though they understood, were still a little offensive to them because that was their past, their history, and Jesus was being very critical of it. 
It's like, you know, I mean, some of you come from maybe a Baptist background. I do too. I went to Baptist schools growing up as a kid. And if I was to get up here tonight and say, and let me preface, I don't really believe what I'm about to say. So don't YouTube, Facebook me for this and get me in trouble tomorrow. Understand? I don't believe what I'm about to say. But if I come here tonight, let me look at the camera. I don't believe this. But if I come here and say, those Baptist snakes... Man, those empty denominational people. Oh, and I would go on. Now, some of you that come from that background, you'd think, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. I, I like Calvary Chapel as much as the next guy. But don't you understand all the hospitals they've created, all the schools they have, all the good that they've done? You might feel that way, and rightfully so. You'd want to open my eyes to the good things the Baptists have done. And that's exactly what's going on between Jesus and the disciples. And it works out as they're leaving the temple area. It says there in verse one, the disciples, they're looking, they say, hey, Jesus, consider the temple. You know, he's just been railing on Judaism and the leaders of Judaism. And the disciples point to the temple and say, do you see these great, amazing buildings? And the point is, hey, Jesus, you've been a little rough on our religion. We understand some of those guys might not be as genuine as you, but do you see what Judaism has created? Do you see these magnificent buildings? And the context is, it can't be all bad. And for our understanding, we probably would have thought this too. The temple was an amazing structure. Josephus tells us the stones were 40 feet in length and 20 feet high. To put that in context, you're talking the size of train freight cars. One single stone. In fact, if you've been to Israel, you've been there under the Temple Mount, and you can walk along these stones that are literally one single stone, the size of a, of a, of a train boxcar. And they were formed off-site, brought to the temple, and fit together completely perfectly. Brass gates surrounded the temple 130 feet high with ornate gold and jewels covering them. The veil in the temple was 30 feet wide, 60 feet tall, 18 inches thick, made up of 72 braids, each braid having 72 cords. A.T. Robertson says it took 300 priests to hang it. This is a massive, amazing structure. Some scholars have estimated that in today's money, If you added up the worth of the property there in Jerusalem, the materials, the gold, the jewels, everything that went in to the temple and the labor for the workforce to build that exact same structure in that place today would cost one, get this, one trillion dollars. This was a $1 trillion building. Sounds like something the American government has you know, bought and paid for, doesn't it? $1 trillion spent on a building. That is a cool building project. Imagine that. Imagine how big that thermometer would be up here. Come on, church. All we need, $1 trillion. <laughs> the Babylonian Talmud records that in the ancient world, you had not seen a magnificent building until you had seen the temple in Jerusalem. That's from the Babylonians, those that constructed the hanging gardens of Babylon and many other ancient wonders of the world. They say you haven't seen an ancient structure. You haven't seen a magnificent building until you've seen the temple there in Jerusalem. The disciples were obviously impressed. If your church had a trillion dollar building, you would be impressed as well. And they want to show it off. They want to point it out to Jesus to kind of soften up his attitude toward the religious leaders. But as they do this, It gives Jesus the opportunity to utter the first prophecy of this Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. 
the occasion brought on the question we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. Jesus said, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. In this first prophecy of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, as wonderful as that temple structure is, and it was, that structure is going to fall. In fact, more than fall, it's going to be taken apart brick by brick. Now, precious men and women, we've got to stop here just for a second because you have got to understand how highly unlikely that would have seemed to the disciples. The disciples listening to Jesus say that that structure will be taken apart brick by brick. That must have thought, they must have thought he's lost his mind. I mean, it's one thing he's talking about dying. Now he's talking about the temple being brought down. You see, in their minds, Israel was about to enter into its greatest time period. And the the temple was the greatest structure among all structures. They must have thought this guy has lost it. Even if we were conquered, even if Rome came in and conquered us, who's going to take apart a temple stone by stone with stones that big? Who in the world is going to do it? They must have thought, there's no way. But of course, you that know your Bibles and know history know that's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, just less than 40 years from the time Matthew 24 was uttered by Jesus, less than 40 years, Titus Vespasian leads the Roman legions down to Israel to stop civil unrest that was growing. And they were commanded, because the temple was such an amazing structure, they were commanded not to touch the temple. But as they were ransacking the city, history records that one night a drunk soldier threw a torch into the temple structure. And the temple was set on fire and the gold began to melt and seep into those stones and in those cracks. And because the temple was already destroyed, that Roman general declared, we're going to take it apart brick by brick. We're going to scrape all the gold off the sides of the brick. In fact, History records that that they used that money that they stole from the temple there in Jerusalem to build the Roman Colosseum. It came from the money that had melted there in the temple structure of Jerusalem. But to take it apart brick by brick to get the gold, it fulfills the prophecy literally and exactly just as Jesus said. And it's an amazing event in history. It's an amazing event that you can see the evidence of. If you ever get to go to Israel, in fact, Pastor Rob and I are praying about doing a trip in 2013. So start saving, start saving, start saving. But if you get to go, you go by the the last remaining part of the temple there, the, the western wall, the foundation stones of the original temple. And they've excavated down to an original street level at Jesus' time. And it's kind of a trip because... You get some people like kissing the street and that seems a little odd. They're like, Jesus' foot was here. And though I'm really stoked that I can walk on the same street as Jesus, I refrain from kissing the street because that was odd to me. But as you're walking down the street on the side of the road, there are these giant, again, freight car-sized stones broken into pieces. And the Israeli Ministry of Tourism has put signs up that says, this exhibit brought to you by the Roman generals AD 70. In other words, when they toss those rocks, off of our temple mount they provided this you know viewing structure for you to see and I thought it was hilarious but I wanted to add another sign that said and prophesied by Jesus the king of the Jews of course they probably wouldn't have liked that sign that I would have put up but the reality is you can go and you can see this amazing prophecy fulfilled there in the city of Jerusalem now why is Jesus going through this with the disciples there's a reason there's a reason friends the first reason of course is he wants the disciples to see That their eyes are on Judaism, their eyes are on these structures, and their eyes need to be on Him. Their eyes need to be on Him. 
You see, their world was going to get ripped up in just a few days from this event. And Jesus understood, your eyes need to be on me. They can't be on the passing things of this world. And that's a great lesson for you and I as well. Sometimes our focus is only on the here and now. And whether that be on a person, oh, she's so fine, or he's so hot, or whether that's on an ambition, oh, I've got to get my doctorate, Dr. Duff. That sounds so nice. Dr. Duff, that's what you should, anyways. You know, or, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with pursuits and goals in life. Those things are wonderful. But if those become the only thing that is your passion, if those things become the only thing that is your focus, beware. Because Jesus says, it's all gonna burn. It's all gonna fall apart. Nothing of this world except you and me and the people we impact will remain. Do you hear me on that? No one but you, me, and the people we impact are going to remain. And I bring this up so you can hear this and understand this. And so did Jesus with the disciples. But I think there's a far greater reason he did. He knew that they were about to ask a question that would bring about an answer about prophecy. And there is something about prophecy, isn't there? Oh, we love it. We enjoy it. But something happens in our hearts. When we really begin to understand that Jesus is on the way soon and very soon. Well, it changes the way we look at trials. You know, I, I, I'm not, I can keep my, keep my focus on the Lord because I realize, hey, this world is not my eternal home. I'm going to be with Jesus. It changes the way I, I look at temptation. Hey, man, you know, I, I'm tempted to go there, but Jesus is coming soon. Why would I want to do that? And because prophecy can have this radical impact on my heart and yours, the enemy knows it too. So every time we deal with prophecy, guess what there is? There's a little doubt that comes with it, huh? Man, we read these things and we think, really? Really, there's going to be an antichrist ruling the world. Things are going to be falling out of the sky. Really, really? I mean, won't this world just go on as it always has? Jesus knows that. So, so catch what he does. He gives a prophecy that his disciples would have seen fulfilled in their lifetime. A prophecy they would have thought is impossible. There's no way this temple, even if we're conquered, will get taken apart stone by stone. And when it happened literally, exactly as Jesus did, do you know what that did in their hearts? Jesus says what he means and he means what he says. And friends, we need to see this too. Because as we deal with prophecy, whether it's Matthew 24, the book of Revelation, Daniel, whatever it is, sometimes it wells in our heart. Really? Is that really going to happen? Friends, in Texas, we say, remember the Alamo. Well, Bible students need to say, remember the temple. Remember the temple. Every time my heart goes, really, is that gonna happen? Remember the temple. Jesus said something about that temple that the disciples thought was impossible, yet it happened exactly as Jesus said, and we need to remember that as we study prophecy together. So he gives them this unlikely prophecy that's the occasion for the question. Now, secondly, I want us to note the question itself. Look at verse three. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's why this is called the Olivet Discourse. It was kind of cute, I guess. When I was teaching this in in Paris, Texas, someone walked up to me and said, I love that term, Olivet Discourse, because Jesus kind of does deal with all of it in this message. And I said, okay, but that's not why. (laughs) Maybe true, but it's called the Olivet Discourse, not the A-L-L, but the O-L-I. Anyways, the Olivet Discourse, because it was preached from the Mount of Olives. Now, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him and said, tell us what will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
After Jesus rebukes the disciples, then comes the question, well then what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? For us to properly understand the answer, we need to properly understand the question and avoid what I feel is common misinterpretations of this entire text. They're asking Jesus, what is the world going to look like right before you set up your kingdom? You see, they were familiar with the prophecies of the Messiah that he was coming to rule and reign. And now it seems Jesus is talking about dying. He's talking about the temple being taken apart brick by brick. And so they're asking him, when are you going to reign? When are you going to set up your kingdom? You see, this is Jesus, the rabbi, talking to his Jewish disciples about setting up his kingdom, an event we would call today, they wouldn't call it then, but we would call it today the second coming of Jesus Christ. What is going to happen right before you come again? And what Jesus gives them in Matthew 24 is an outline of the events that happen right before Jesus comes again, or in other words, the great tribulation period. Many Bible scholars believe that tribulation is a seven-year period coming upon planet earth. Why seven years? If you don't know, you've got to come back next Wednesday night. Because we look at the abomination that makes desolate. We get into Daniel chapter 9. We'll see why Bible scholars believe this tribulation period is a seven years in length. But sufficient for our study tonight, this seven-year tribulation, most Bible scholars believe, will be divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods, with the middle being this this event called the abomination that makes desolate. But these two three-and-a-half-year periods, and Matthew 24 is divided, we'll put it up on the screen, on, on the events that happen in the tribulation period. Verses 4 through 14 deal with the event of the first half of the tribulation. Things that will take place in that first three and a half year period. They tie in to Revelation chapter 6 as we'll see in just a minute. Then Matthew 24 verses 15 through 20 talk about the events in the middle of the tribulation period. And then chapter 24 verses 21 through 31 give us the events of the second half of the tribulation leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And tonight I want to unpack just that first one. As Jesus examines, begins to answer this question and examines the events in the first half of the tribulation period. So draw your attention back to verse 4. It says, And Jesus answered and said, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there'll be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you'll be hated for, by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures till the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Jesus opens up this prophecy in Matthew 24 by giving the disciples six signs that he's on the way. Six signs that he is going to set up his kingdom. I want you to note them briefly. We'll put them up on the screen and then we'll go through them one at a time as we begin to wrap up the study tonight. He says, you're going to see false Christ, number one. Number two, you're going to see wars and rumors of wars, Matthew 24, verse 6. You're going to see famines, verse 7, and diseases or pestilences, also in verse 7. You'll see earthquakes in various places, and you're going to see persecution of believers in the tribulation period. 
And it's interesting to me that these six signs really line up with the six seals that we see in the book of Revelation. And that's important because Jesus, listen carefully to me, he relates these signs, he calls them the beginning of sorrows. And you Bible students understand what he's saying is they're like birth pains. They're like labor pains. And you ladies who have children, here's what you know. Our, us guys have witnessed in theory, but you know, you know, that those labor pains do what? They grow stronger and closer together before the baby comes. That's what happens. They grow stronger and closer together. In fact, it's always fun to find a new mom who hasn't had a baby yet. Because they'll say things to you veteran moms like, oh, is that labor? I'm kind of cramping. Does that, is that what labor feels like? And you guys just smile, you veteran moms, and you're like, no, honey child, it is not. <laughs> that is not it. It's nothing like that. You know, I, 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 uh, you know, I remember when um, Christy had, had our first, Haley, and, um, you know, it just like, you know, she was asking those same questions as a new mom, you know, oh, is that it? And some of you in the congregation tonight were like, no, that's not it. You'll know. You'll know, they kept telling her. You'll know when labor comes. You won't like, is this it? No, you'll know. And, and, and I remember, I remember when she knew. It was like, whoo, it is, it is here. But of course, being Christy, if you don't know my wife, the first thing she did is she, she went in and got all dressed and put her makeup on. She's like, take pictures of me, you know? And, and early labor with these smiley pictures of her just, baby, Haley's coming, you know, and smiling. And then a few hours later, those pictures turned from big smile to a little nervous looking, you know? It's kind of like, Hmm, a little stronger, a little more intense to later on, of course, you know, there was pain because again, I speak only in theory, ladies, but what I've heard, what I've been told is that they get stronger, these labor pains and closer together. So what Jesus is saying is this, we've seen these things since the time of Christ, false Christ, earthquakes, famines, diseases, but as it gets closer for me to return, they're going to intensify, get closer together, and then, listen Bible students, they're going to find their culmination in the tribulation period where we're going to have the ultimate false Christ, the ultimate war, the ultimate famine, disease, earthquake, and persecution. And we see this with each of these. Jesus said the first thing you're looking for is false Christ. False Christ. First thing Jesus mentions will be a sign he is coming is that people would start to show up and say, I am the Messiah. You know, it's interesting to note that prior to Jesus, no one claimed to be the Messiah. No one did. But in the 60 years following his death on the cross, there were a hundred such people who claimed to be the Messiah in 60 years. Why is that? Because the counterfeit always follows the real thing. You know, if some of you are planning on starting a counterfeiting business, don't tell me because I'll have to report you. But if that's just where you're at, the economy's down, so you're like, I got it. The government does it. I'll do it too. I'll print my own money. That sounds good. I'll go through this. If you're going down that road, don't tell me. But if you are, don't print a $7 bill. That's my advice to you. Don't print a $7 bill. Because if you do, even the slowest of clerks, hopefully, will pick up the fact that you have a $7 bill. Why will they pick up on that? Because 
That doesn't exist. There is no $7 bill, so you wouldn't want to counterfeit a $7 bill. But listen, once Jesus came, there were false Christs. There were in the hundred years that followed, and they're still around in our day and age. Give you some examples. A guy by the name of Arnold Potter lived in the 1800s, broke off from the Latter-day Saints, which is Mormonism. He claimed that the spirit of Jesus Christ entered his body, and he became the self-proclaimed Potter Christ. Now, for you Harry Potter fans, I just want to let you know, Harry was not the first Potter. It was Potter Christ, the son of the living God, he called himself. Well, obviously not true. Sun, Sun, Sun Young Moon and his Unification Church claimed to be the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus. Jim Jones said that he was the reincarnation of Jesus, Buddha, and Lenin. Now, that is a trifecta right there. I am Jesus, Buddha, and Lenin, all rolled into one body. Marshall Applewhite, of course, was the one that wanted to jump on that comet a few years ago, and... They just roll on and on and on and on. And false Christs are a sign that he's coming. We've seen him in the past. We see him today. But the culmination will be the ultimate false Christ again in that first half of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6. The verse will be up on the screen. The first seal opens up and John writes. He said, I looked and behold a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow. And a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, we'll have a chance to tear this, this uh, verse apart later because another thing Pastor Rob and I are praying about doing is doing the book of Revelation next year. Him topically on Sunday morning and me going through it chapter by chapter here on Wednesday night. So I hope that goes on. But if we do that, if not, we'll do it sometime. So we can tear up off this verse later. But it's speaking about Antichrist coming on the scene. And it's going to culminate again these false Christs in the tribulation period. The second sign Jesus gives of his coming are wars and rumors of wars. There'll be roars and rumors of wars. And again, there's always been war. William Durant, a very well-respected historian, says, War is one of the constants of history. It is not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. That's crazy. 3,421 years of recorded human history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. But guess what? It's getting worse. The United Nations put out a report that said that since 1945, in other words, since the year that ended the war to end all wars, we never have to fight again because we had World War II. No more need to fight. There has not been a day on planet Earth a war has not been raging in one country at least. Not a single day. Our ability to kill one another has increased. One of our our, our latest nuclear subs has more firepower on it than every single bomb, bullet, explosion that took place in World War II combined. That's crazy. Every single bomb that was dropped in World War II on both sides, including the one we dropped or two that we dropped over Japan, All of that combined in one nuclear sub. Our ability to wipe each other out is just increasing. And another thing Jesus said interests me. He says, before I come, nation will rise against nation and kingdom will rise against kingdom. Now some of us read that and we think Jesus is just finding another way to say the same thing. But the word kingdom is interesting because it means a coalition of nations. And again, we find that in our modern warfare more than any other time in human history with things like NATO and the UN as we go together and fight battles as a united group of kingdoms. Jesus says, that's what's going to happen right before I come back. And then 
You're going to see the culmination of that again in the tribulation period. When Antichrist will take the world under his control, he'll have his day, but guess what? Without Jesus, there is no peace. So what happens? Revelation chapter 6, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, that those people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. After the coming of Antichrist on the scene, the next seal is war, and the devastation is horrible. In other places of the book of Revelation, we learn that a fourth of the human population will be destroyed. A fourth. Now, if there's what? Roughly six billion people in the world today? Let's say really gracefully that two billion of them are Christians. It's probably really graceful, but since I want a number I can easily divide by four. Let's say there are four billion people left over after the rapture. That is one billion people dead we've never seen a war like that you see the culmination is this thing in the tribulation period how do you know i'm on my way false christ jesus says wars and rumors of wars famines in verse 7 a third sign is famine which of course again is the common outflow of war whether it's food supplies destroyed farmland destroyed nations spending money on arms instead of food or just some warlord hoarding it for himself war often brings famine we've seen that in generations past you children of the 80s of which I am anyways you remember the Michael Jackson Ethiopia you know save save Ethiopia concerts what was that because of it was because of wars that have raged there in Africa in, in the 70s it brought about the famines in the 80s and we still see the potential for famine today you know just in usa today a few weeks ago i read that we have we have six months of food supplies in the united states and some of you are like well that's pretty good that's not good six months six months is all that we have stored up the most powerful and rich nation in the world only has six months we're not ready for tribulation famine not even the great united states we're not ready These things are coming upon us. And again, we'll see the culmination in the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 6, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of wheat, three quarts of barley for denarius, but do not harm the oil and the wine. In the tribulation period, the famine gets so bad. What that verse is telling you is you will work all day, hopefully not you, but those people will work all day for one loaf of bread. I know it feels like that already in our economy, but boy, it's going to get worse. Intense famine coming on the scene. Jesus says, number four sign, pestilence or disease. Again, Matthew 24, verse 7, the fourth sign is pestilence, a word that means devastating disease. Disease has always been a problem in society. We get a handle on some of them. Not too many people die of polio or diphtheria anymore because of vaccines. We get handles on diseases. But the problem is new ones just keep emerging over and over again. In our lifetime, we've seen the rise of AIDS and SARS and bird flu. And I guarantee that if the Lord should tarry, there'll be things coming on the scene that seem even worse. You know, experts tell us that we are way overdue as a culture. We are way overdue for a pandemic flu, a flu to wipe out a huge majority of the world population. In fact, that movie Contagion was based on that. And if you didn't see it, I don't recommend it unless you want to wash your hands incessantly for like the next year and a half. But anyways, it's coming. And again, 
We see the culmination of it in the tribulation period, the fourth seal, Revelation 6. When he opened up the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. And so I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. Pale, now not pale like my skin, but pale as in green and sickly. That's the context here. It's death and disease that will ravage the planet during the tribulation period. Jesus says you're going to see false Christ, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, diseases. The fifth one, earthquakes in various places. Earthquakes in various places. Again, earthquakes have always been around. But what Jesus tells us is before I return, they're going to start happening in various places. In other words, where they don't normally occur. And friends, if you've been reading local newspapers, you realize we see that even this year. Where Turkey has been ravaged by a couple of earthquakes where it's not known as a a normally seismic activity. In our own nation, a 5.8 epicenter earthquake in Virginia this year. Not in California, in Virginia. They're not known for their devastating earthquakes. And again, this is what we see the Lord talking about. They'll be where they've not been before. The culmination though, again the tribulation period. Revelation 6, I looked and he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. Dr. Henry Morris speculates that what that might be talking about is a chain reaction of one fault affecting the another and literally having shaking going on all over the world. And the devastation of that, well, it's the kind of stuff we read about in the book of Revelation. So he might be on to something. Of course, you know, we can say, well, that's just some guy who's a believer that believes stuff like that last week there was a show on discovery channel i wish i had taped it one of those like a thousand ways the world's going to end i love those kind of shows you know just maybe we're going to get cooked by the sun maybe we're going to get hit by an asteroid anyways it was talking about the, the possibility of you know every fault slipping at once and what that would and i'm looking at this going they stole that from Henry Morris. That's a, that's a biblical idea. And of course, these are not guys like, and so I wanted to prove Revelation chapter six. And so, I mean, these are guys that don't believe in God talking about the possibility of these things actually occurring. Signs that he's on his way. False Christ, wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences or diseases, earthquakes in various places, persecution of believers in the tribulation. Now, when I say in the tribulation, some of you immediately go, wait a second, wait a second. I thought, that we believe here at Calvary Chapel that we're gonna, you know, up in the air before the tribulation period. You don't, you, you don't. Because you know this will be your last Wednesday night, right? You don't believe that we're actually gonna go into the tribulation period. No, I do not. But people will be saved in the tribulation period. There will be believers, people you've shared with, that right now are like, whatever, you know? I mean, I've got family members, you know, who, who, you know, we've made a rapture box for. My mom does. She makes a rapture box. And we've got family members. They're like, they, they jump, they, they, they jump up. They're like, I'm getting ready for the rapture. And they jump up and just mock and laugh. Well, I pray, I pray, I pray they get saved before that event. But if they don't, they're going for the box. I'm telling you, they're going for the box. And there's teachings and tapes and stuff in there where they're going to get saved and give their life to the Lord. And, and that's going to happen all over the planet. And those people, oh, they're going to get persecuted. You know, we think we, we think we get persecuted. You know, someone looks at you funny at work. Oh, persecution, tribulation. You get passed over for promotion. Oh, I know what it's like to be an apostle in the, in the Colosseum. No, you don't. <laughs> Not in America. In the tribulation, you will die for your faith. It's why not a good idea to like wait and see. Like, oh, you know, if this stuff actually starts to happen, then I'll give my life to the Lord. Really not a good game plan, friend. Really not. 
But persecution's always been around since the days of Peter and Paul, from the days of the Roman Empire. And of course, you know, don't think it doesn't happen today. I mean, we might be spared in our country just to weird looks and people saying, ugh. But, but you know, more people have died in the 20th century Christians than in any century previous. In places like China and Sudan and all over, the Christians are dying for their faith. But the sad thing is it'll get worse. We see the culmination again in the tribulation period, Revelation chapter 6, when you open the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Jesus says, you see these things, but they are going to get worse. How do we know you're on your way? False Christ, wars, famines, diseases, earthquakes in various places, pestilence. The disciples may have looked at some of those things and thought, wow, those things aren't occurring right now. I don't understand. It seems like it's a long way off. You and I, though, don't have that luxury. We see these things cropping up their head in our culture, in our society, and they're intensifying. They're getting closer together, and though they will see their culmination in the tribulation period, understand what that means. If we see evidences in our world around us that Jesus' second coming is near, and we theologically believe that there is at least a seven-year period of time before the second coming of Jesus Christ, guess what that means when it talks about Jesus taking his church home? Oh, super near, right even at the door. And we've got to get this into our heart and mind. Jesus is coming for you and me is soon. Now, what do we do about this? I'm almost done. What do we do about this? I find it so fascinating that Jesus, as he's going through these events, what's coming? False Christs are coming. Earthquakes are coming. Famines are coming. Diseases are coming. You'd expect that Jesus would say next, so run and hide. Ah, you know, so end it all and just let's go to heaven right now. Do you realize that's not what Jesus said though? In Luke's account of this same message, he says this. After he lists all these signs, he says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. I love that. Jesus is basically telling his disciples, this world is getting dark. This world is getting ugly. This world is getting scary. And he doesn't say run and hide, disciples. Disciples tonight. He doesn't say run and hide. He says, this is your opportunity. And I want you to hear this, precious church. Because though I hope and pray and understand theologically, you're not going to probably see the great tribulation. Hey, this world is tribulation enough, isn't it? <laughs> Man, sickness, disease, death, America printing money like it's going out of style. And we go, what's going on? What is going to happen? And people will come to you. What's going on in these dark days? This is your opportunity. Some of the greatest tragedies can be the greatest opportunities for you as a believer to say, wait a second. There is someone greater than any king, any candidate, any ruler, and his name is Jesus. You see, friends, your hope, I hope you know this, your hope is not in the 2012 elections. You understand that, right? You understand that. It is not, I don't care who you're pulling for. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. Your hope is not in 2012. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. And you can share that with people around you as not only this world goes through tragedies, but as you and they go through personal tragedies. 
Your personal tragedies are the greatest opportunities for you to bear witness. So often we go through these tragedies, we ask the wrong questions. We ask, where is God? Does he care? Is he good? Is he paying attention? Does he love me? Will he forsake me? Has he abandoned me? Those are the wrong questions. The right question is, where is the opportunity? Who can I help? Where can I serve? Where is my opportunity? As the world goes through tragedy, as you go through tragedy. Our greatest tragedies, and some of you I know are facing them. Some of you in this precious church have faced deaths of loved ones and personal sickness and marriages being ripped apart. This is your opportunity to shine in a dark, dark world. There is real hope, there is a real future. And it is surrounded by this name that is above all other names. Jesus, who is coming again soon. Amen? Amen. Amen. We'll spend the next couple of weeks looking at the rest of this chapter and the rest of the great tribulation and the events that take place and what we can do about it in our lives right now. Father, as we wrap up our time tonight again, It is not my purpose to study prophecy, though I love prophecy. It's not my purpose to get Bible weird. God, I I want prophecy to affect the way we live. Not so we can look at people on TV and start counting letters of their name. But so, Father, we can realize that you are coming again. God, may it change the way we look at temptation. May it change the way we look at trials. May we understand what you wanted your disciples 2,000 years ago. Lord, I pray your disciples tonight would understand that our greatest tragedies are our greatest opportunities to shine as lights and to lift up the name above all other names. So God, may we search our hearts tonight. And we realize that your coming for us is near even at the door. And may it affect the way we pray. May it affect the way we live. May it affect the way we witness. Lord, we pray for our loved ones that don't know you. We pray for our coworkers that are far from you. We pray from those that need a touch from you, Lord. May you crash into their darkness in any way that you want to use us in what I believe this final generation. Lord, Excite our hearts. Challenge our lives. God, do this work in our hearts tonight. Lord, I also pray for anyone here that maybe doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, that tonight would be the night that they would give their heart and life fully and completely to you. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, and if you're a believer, man, you're just praying. You're praying for those that are sitting here tonight. You're praying for those that are watching online or will hear this study later. But if you're listening to these words and you just sense you're far from God, friend, I, I want to tell you just genuinely, now is not the time. Now's not the time to live apart from God. Not that there's any good time, but now is definitely not the time. Because the signs are coming together. We live in a culture and a society that is unlike any that has existed before in human history. 
and prophecies are aligning. Jesus is on the way. And if you sense in your heart, I'm far from God, it's time to give your heart and life to him. It's time to surrender to that work of the Holy Spirit in your life tonight. And Romans 10 says you can by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. As you realize, hey, Lord, you're working in me. And just saying, I believe and I want what you did on the cross to count for me. Just a simple prayer as we're worshiping tonight. Just a simple prayer between you and the Lord saying, Lord, I surrender to what you're doing. I give you my heart. I give you my life. Forgive me of my sins. I want what you did on the cross to count for me. Just cry out to him tonight and begin a real, genuine walk with Jesus Christ. It'll be the most important thing you ever do.